Um, we've been on a, on a theme here and just kind of rolling through what it really looks like if we're going to follow Jesus. What does that look like? What does it really entail? Trying to separate kind of cultural feelings and, and kind of squishy ideas or, or, or ideas that have been received to us from childhood into something that is really grounded and based in Scripture, grounded and based in the, in the cultural context and the language of the time, so that we can really start to understand what this way looks like, capital W. It's always been fascinating to me that the first followers of Jesus, these first Jewish followers, these Aramaic speakers, called themselves Talmidi Urha, which literally means followers of the way. Followers of the way. Notice not followers of Jesus, followers of the way. Now, of course, Jesus and the way to them were identical. Jesus was the way. He was the way personified. But notice the emphasis. To say that you're a follower of the way rather than a follower of Jesus tells us that this is not vicarious. Jesus didn't do it for us so that we can just sit and reap the benefits. This is not passive where we can just sit back again. This is active. This is full immersion. This is full extension. This is movement energetically, volitionally, along a path, along a way. Now we understand that we're with Jesus and we're in Jesus, as Paul would say, in Christ as we do this. But we still got to do it. It's not going to be done for us. This is so important for us to understand. Take a look at John 14, because John is making the exact same point here. Jesus' words. John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Now, that's always been a hard verse for a lot of us, and it seems impossible because we're focused on all of Jesus' miracles. We're going to do what Jesus did? Okay, so the blind are going to see, and the deaf are going to hear, and the lame are going to walk, and the lepers are going to be cleansed. You know, the captives are going to be set free. We're going to do those kind of... We're so focused, literally, on physical miracles that we're also missing the spiritual undertones. And we talked about this last week. Every one of those healings from the blind seeing to the deaf hearing to the lame walking, has a spiritual counterpart. To be able to see past our own biases, see past all the false information, see past our own false selves, who we think we are, what we think we know, to something beyond that, is spiritually the blind seeing. To be open to new ways of living life, open to new truths, is the deaf hearing. To move past the paralysis of fear that we feel, the, the, the overbearing risk that keeps us from moving in certain directions is the lame walking. The leper's healing is moving back into community when we were once separated and segregated to be able to move back in and partake again. All of these are the captives being set free. Free from some sort of oppression, whether self-inflicted or not. And what Jesus is talking about when he talks about preaching good news to the poor, the poor, as we expanded last week, was anyone who was less than ideal in any direction, whether it was physical, whether it was mental, spiritual, emotional, financial, 
relational. Anything that was less than shalom, which is the perfect amount of all of those things, was missing the mark, was literally to be in sin, to be in some kind of separation. To move back into connection, to move back into shalom, is what the way is all about, what Jesus is teaching. And each one of us needs to take this journey. And obviously, Jesus had to start with himself. We sometimes miss that fact because we focus so heavenly on Jesus' divinity, his Godhead, that we miss the fact that he was fully human as well. As a fully human being, he had to take the same journey. And if he didn't take that journey, how in the world could he show us the journey? How could he teach us the journey? How could he have any empathy for the journey that we mere mortals have to take? And at Hebrews 2 and 4, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, is making exactly that point. So I'm not just pulling this stuff out of the air. Take a look here. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, like all of us, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are also tempted. Jesus was fully human in all ways. We forget that. We gloss over it. We don't spend time really thinking about what that actually means in Jesus' life, what he actually did, the way that he had to follow, everything that he had to overcome. He faced all human weaknesses. Take a look at chapter 4, verse 15. Still Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And this word tempted can kind of trip us up sometimes because we're going to think of it mostly as a moral choice, right? I was tempted to eat chocolate today. No. I was tempted to steal. I was tempted to lust. I was te- we think of them as moral choices, but it's larger than that. Think of First James. Count it all joy, my brethren, when we encounter various trials and tribulations. Same word. Same word root. Tempted, trials, tribulations. It's larger than that. It's not only the moral choices that we have to make. It's our own human weaknesses. Our human nature, if you will. The basic way that we approach and live life that causes us to be weak in certain areas. It's also the life circumstances that come without any bidding on our part. All the things that hit us, the choices of others, consequences of our own choices, all these things together are what Jesus needed to face. This is what we're talking about here. Life challenges, physical limitations, physical limitations, We don't often think of Jesus as having those, but take a look at at John 4 here, verse 6 to 7. This is Jesus at the well in Samaria. After his journey there, Jesus, being wearied, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, and there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus was tired, like anyone would be, walking in the hot sun for miles, in open-toed sandals, in the dirt, He's tired. He's thirsty. He's hot. But other places in Scripture, if you're really paying attention, Jesus is angry. Jesus is sad. Jesus is weeping. 
Jesus is astonished. How do you astonish God? That's pretty cool. Jesus is astonished at what he sees. He's astonished at the faith of the centurion. He enters into mourning with his friends. He is happy. He's afraid. Afraid to the point that he actually sweats blood on Gethsemane. He's all the things that we are. The beautiful thing about the New Testament and the Bible in general is it doesn't gloss over or hide anything. Jesus is shown with a full range of human emotion, human frailty, weakness and strength. All of that is there. If we really pay attention and we really take a look. All of these things were there, yet without sin. Okay, how do we parse that? What are we supposed to do with that? Does that mean that Jesus never made a mistake ever in his life? As a young boy in his father's carpentry shop, did he never cut the board to the wrong length? Did he never hit his thumb with a hammer? These are the things that you need to think about. I mean, we're just speculating here, of course. We're reading between the lines. But it makes a difference in how we view Jesus. Because if we take Jesus so far out of the human realm and put him up on the the pedestal, the throne of God, then we're missing the fact that he's right here with us. Not only that, we're missing the fact that when we read the New Testament, we're reading the shape and the details of a journey that we need to take. This isn't something that's removed from us. That isn't something that's out of our realm. It's something right here, right now, that Jesus says we can do. Not only that, we need to do, because this is the only way to the Father. You want to be with the Father? You want to be one with the Father? You want that kind of freedom? You want to do the things that you see me doing? This is the way, and this is the only way. This is how it goes. Yes, Jesus got angry. He hurt his mother and father. Remember the story of the pilgrimage to Jerusalem? He's 12 years old. He bolts. He leaves. He doesn't tell his parents where he is. They're three days on the way home in the caravan before they realize he's not with us. Imagine the panic. You know? Son, why didn't you just pick up the phone and call? Just, just give me a call. Come on. You know, and like a good Jewish mother is when she gets right, son, why did you do this to us? But at the end of that, when, when he finally says, and he retorts, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? But then he moves back in with them into the caravan, goes home, and Luke 2 says that he stayed in submission, in subjection to them. In other words, he lived with them as he was supposed to live. But also he grew. Look at Luke 2, right before that, what I just quoted. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So he goes home. He kind of gets his dressing down by his parents. He retorts, and then he moves back in, stays in submission to them, but continues to grow in wisdom and stature. So if he grew in wisdom and stature, then there was a time when he knew less and then a time when he knew more. There was a time when he was more limited and a time that he was less limited. In other words, he developed the way that we do. This is sometimes so foreign to us, but we've got to go here. We've got to understand that this is what Jesus is really saying. Then how was he sinless? Because he continued to grow to the point that he and the Father were completely one. There was no separation between them. And remember, we keep trying to redefine sin for us because we think of sin as immoral behavior, unlawful behavior. And sin to the ancients wasn't the behavior that was unlawful. 
It was a state of separation that certain behavior created. Sin was the separation. Behavior that led to separation was sinful. It missed the mark. Behavior that led to connection and unity was righteous. Jesus got to the point that there was no separation in him. He was completely integrated. He was completely one from inside to outside with everyone around him, with nature, with his Father's spirit, without sin. Was he born that way? I don't know. How could I? How could any of us? But if you take a look at these series of clues that I'm giving you, I'm hoping that at least you're starting to look at this in a little bit different way and open up the possibility that Jesus grew and developed and learned the way that we do. He is the way, but he's also showing us the way. And he's inviting us to take the same journey. And he says, if we don't, you're still loved. I still love you and I accept you. But you're not going to know the freedom. You're not going to know the truth that makes you free. And this is what he's calling us to. This is where he's trying to get us to there. So, if this is so, then what do we know about Jesus' life journey that can help us to follow him more closely. What's the shape of that journey? We've talked about this in terms of the Paschal mystery, you know, the descent before the ascent, the going down and the stripping away. But today we want to try to get in a little bit more detail. Not just the generality, but really get down under the hood a bit because that's what we need as people. We need to know specifics. We need to know how it is that we can go through and actually apply this into our life. We're going to be faced with an immediate problem. We don't know much about Jesus prior to the beginning of his public ministry. Almost everything that we know about Jesus is from the beginning of his public ministry onward. But there's 30 years before that that we know so little of. Only Luke and Matthew give us any infancy narrative or any information about his youth or anything prior to his baptism journey into the wilderness in his public ministry. The other two Gospels don't. And there's precious little about that. We get a story of his birth, right? We get the story of the Magi attending him and visiting him. We get the story that when he's 12, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and what we just talked about. And then we have the story of his baptism with his cousin John at the River Jordan and his movement into the wilderness. That's it. 30 years, four little pericopes If you don't know that word, it's just a small story that's embedded into the narrative. Four little stories. And 18 fully silent years from age 12 to age 30 that there is nothing about whatsoever. So if we're going to try to reconstruct how Jesus came to the point that he was without sin, if you're you're buying that concept at all, at least came to the point that he was ready to start his public ministry, you know, he didn't start at age 12. He started somewhere around age 30, Luke tells us. What is going on there? What can we start to put together? Now, we can look at the clues here, the details in the narrative, four clues, to try to reconstruct something. And so I'm going to do my best to reconstruct this a little bit, and let's see how we do. We have the story of his birth, all right? Very, very sparse in Matthew, more detailed in Luke. We know that eight days after he was born, he was circumcised, as was according to the law of Moses. And it was 33 days after that, a full 40 days before he was presented in the temple, taken to the temple, presented, named officially, because Mary had to go through 40 days of of the impurity rite. 
And uh, this was something that was encoded into Leviticus. Um, for a male child, it was seven days plus 33 that the woman was considered impure and unclean and she couldn't leave the house, she couldn't go to temple, she couldn't do anything. So they had to wait that 40 days. Interestingly for a female, it's twice that. It's 14 days plus 66 for 80 days. So there was 40 days and then they go to the temple. So they're in Bethlehem for the birth, remember? They go to Bethlehem. Then, after 40 days, so presumably, since there's nothing in there from either gospel, they were stayed in, stayed in Bethlehem at their, probably a re- relative's house in, in the, uh, the guest room there for a month, 40 days. Then they go to Jerusalem, they present Jesus there, and then they head back to Nazareth, which was their, their hometown. So we know that little bit about it. Now, in Matthew, it's not so clear that they ever leave Bethlehem. But Luke is specific. They go back to Nazareth, which means that when the Magi come, which was probably at least one to two years later, and some scholars say maybe as much as three or four years later, Jesus was not an infant. He wasn't still in the manger, like all our creches and manger scenes say. It would have been a year or two later. And guess what? It would have been in Nazareth that the Magi came, because according to Luke, that's where they were. Even though, yes, they talk about him being born in Bethlehem to Herod, and Herod kills the infants in Bethlehem, but Luke tells us they weren't there. They were in Nazareth. Interesting. Get that one for free. I don't know if it has anything to do with what we're talking about, but there you go. And then Joseph is warned in a dream. He bolts and goes to Egypt, probably for only a year or two, because Herod died in 4 B.C., so uh, Jesus had to be born in 6 or 7 B.C., something like that. You know, so the, the dates that we have traditionally are, are askew. And then after he is told by the angel that he can come back, he comes back to Nazareth. Now we jump here from, from those early days until Jesus is 12. And then we have the story of the family going to Jerusalem, as they're supposed to do at the various pilgrimage festivals. And Jesus has his antics there. And Jesus at age 12 is interesting because that's the age of the bar mitzvah, which literally means son of the law. At age 12, the young boy becomes of age. He is now responsible under the law, whereas before his parents were responsible for him. But at age 12, he is now responsible as a man. So this is a coming-of-age story. This is his rite of passage, you know, starting to show his independence, showing his own initiative, and starting to see that he has an idea about what he's about. There's something going on inside of him. And obviously, he's a brilliant child because he's astounding all of the, the religious leaders and the teachers, the rabbis in the temple when his parents find him. But when he goes back home with them, to Nazareth, he stays in submission. What does it mean to be in submission? It means to be a good son as that was customarily understood by the Jews at the time. So that means Jesus would have followed his father's trade. And the trade was not necessarily a carpenter. The word there means craftsman. And it was a general term that could mean anyone who built things, built things. So it could have been a, cra- uh, a carpenter, it could have been a stonemason, it could have been different types of disciplines, but all in that general trade. And so Jesus would have followed after his father. As the oldest, as the firstborn, he would have also had that responsibility to run the house and Mary is mentioned all the way at the crucifixion and beyond. We see Jesus giving his mother away to his best friend, John, 
for safekeeping. So presumably Joseph has already died because he doesn't, isn't mentioned anywhere beyond these early narratives. Traditionally, Joseph could have been a lot older than Mary. Now, he could have been in his 20s or 30s or even older, and Mary would have been married off at 13, 12, you know, as soon as she was able to produce children. And so presumably Joseph has died. What does that mean? That means as the eldest, Jesus would have been the new patriarch of that family. All the boys stayed with the family. So Jesus would have been the head of the household. He would have been responsible for his mother taking care of her. He would have been responsible for his siblings. Jesus had siblings? Yeah, scripture tells us he had brothers. Now, admittedly, brother in Aramaic can mean cousins because there's no word for cousins, but there's no reason to assume that Mary didn't have children with Joseph after Jesus. He was responsible. He was responsible for the family business. He was putting all these things together. To be in submission meant that he was taking care of all of this business as he went through. Do we know that he did a good job? Do we know that he really did this? There's a clue at Luke 4. Take a look. This is when Jesus comes back to Nazareth for the first time after being baptized, after going through the wilderness experience, and apparently after doing some teaching and even some healings in Capernaum. Then he comes to Nazareth, and that's where he is given the Isaiah scroll, and he reads. But look what the people say. At the end of his reading, he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's where he's talking about healing the deaf and preaching good news to the, to the poor and doing all of this. He's giving his mission statement, and then he tells them, This has been fulfilled, this prophecy from Isaiah, in your hearing. And all the Nazarenes, all his people that he grew up with, were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were following from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? In other words, where did this kid come from? We remember him when he was just a little guy running around like all the other kids and taking care of his father's business and doing everything that he did. In other words, there was really nothing special about him. He was just another guy. I always remember, remember Boss Gags, you know, the, the famous singer, songwriter, I remember he, he took a big hiatus in his career because uh, his, his kids were born and he was being a father to them. And he said, they don't know anything about me as Boss Skaggs. I'm just the dude that runs around the house with them. You know, They had no idea that their dad was famous or did anything else. He was just the guy who was there. To these Nazarenes, Jesus was just the guy who was there taking care of his family and doing what everybody else was doing. And now he comes back with this power, with this authority, with these words. Who is this guy? Isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus acknowledges that. He gets that. He says to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Jesus is acknowledging this. It's really hard for people, you know, when they've watched you grow up, when they helped you, you know, do all the things that kids need to do and families need to do to suddenly accept you now with this new mantle of power, this new authority? How do you do that? How do you make that transition? And he also alludes to having ministered in Capernaum first. Why would he do that? Because Matthew tells us that Jesus moved his family from Nazareth to Capernaum. And we missed that little bit too. 
The timing can be moved around. We don't, you know, did Matthew seems to suggest he did it after John was thrown into prison, which would mean after he was baptized and, and went into the uh, wilderness. But it could have been before. At some point along the way, Jesus picks up his whole family and moves them to this town, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee and was a major trade area, a, a fishing village. It, it, was, it was where stuff was really happening as opposed to Nazareth out in the middle of nowhere in the mountains. And so Jesus had a house there. His family had a, an estate, a home there. His mother lived there. He lived there. His chil- his, not his children, Mary's children, his siblings lived there. And this was their, their point of operations. Jesus comes back and goes home. And he teaches there for a while. In fact, the beginning of Jesus' ministry was a home-based ministry, kind of like so many churches start, starting from the home with no overhead, right? Jesus starts from there. He's teaching from there. He's healing from there. There's a story of him healing Peter's mother-in-law. Peter's wife is never mentioned. His mother-in-law is never named. But Jesus heals his mother-in-law. We have that story. So we know Peter was married. We have stories of the, the paralytic who is lowered down through a hole in the roof. Well, guess what Mark tells us? Jesus was at home when this happened. That was Jesus' house. Which gives you a little bit different spin when the first thing he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven, because he knows he has to go up and fix that hole at some point. It was his house. (laughs) Now, scholars debate all these things. Okay, you know, the pronouns are this and that and the other thing, but the simplest reading, you know, is that it was his house. He was at home, Mark tells us. This was his base of operations. That's why he went there first. Now, you're going to remember that at Luke 9, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If he really did have this home, this place in Capernaum, where his family was still living, then he was speaking spiritually. He was talking to us about the difficulty of following this path, the kind of disorientation and disturbance that you're going to have to go through as you move this along this way and allow everything to be stripped away so that you can see what is really in front of you He was talking that way and not necessarily literally the way we tend to see him as this complete itinerant who is always sleeping, you know, in the bushes someplace. Let's take all this and start putting the clues together and see what we can do with what Jesus' life looked like. Obviously, Jesus was an exceptional child. He was a prodigy. By age 12, he was blowing everyone away when he moves into his manhood. But he chooses to live in submission with his family. He chooses to live in submission to his parents and to the culture of his time. But he keeps growing all through these years in wisdom and in stature. Through those 18 silent years, we don't know what he did, but we know that he was growing and he was becoming. We know that as the firstborn, he needed to be responsible for his family and keep the family going after his, his earthly father's death, after Joseph's death. We know that he moved the family to Capernaum. And at some point, this call from God, this divine disturbance which was growing in him the whole time, got to the point where he had to do something. He had to answer the call. He could no longer just continue as he was continuing. It was moving him out and onward. Maybe he got to the point that he realized he could now leave his family 
that the other siblings were old enough and skilled enough to be able to take over for him. We don't know any of the circumstances. But read between the lines. Think of this as a real person's life, like your life. That he could responsibly now leave for several years, possibly, and go away. And he goes to his brother John, baptizing in the Jordan, and is baptized, and from there is compelled out into the wilderness. How long was he in the wilderness? We don't know. It's hard to say. Forty days and forty nights is a symbolic number. It means a time of testing and trial into a rebirth. But it was an expandable period of time. We know that Luke says that John began his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius' reign, which scholars put at 26 A.D., Jesus was about 30 when he started his public ministry. Does that mean when he was baptized? Does that mean when he came back from the wilderness? We don't know. But I guarantee you it was more than 40 days. It was somewhere along the several years. Was Jesus alone when he did this? The scriptures don't say he was with anyone else. But most likely his cousin John was in a scene, which was a sect of Christianity, one of the four major sects that removed themselves from the mainstream of life, went out and built communities in the desert, of which Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, was one of them. Did Jesus go out and join one of those? Did his cousin talk him into going out there to further this calling that he was feeling on his life? We don't know. But he went somewhere, away from his life, away from his family and the things that he knew. And there he had trials that he had tasks that he had to move through, the three symbolic temptations that represent all of the human compulsions and obsessions and addictions that we all have to deal with in life. And when he came back from there, he was one with the Father. When he came back from there, he was without sin. When he came back from there, he was able to model and articulate a relationship that he hadn't been able to before apparently. And then he comes home. And he comes home to Capernaum and he settles back in his house and he starts bringing his friends over and it starts to do signs and wonders and teachings. And he gathers his first few friends. Peter, James and John and Levi are all residents of Capernaum and he calls them and they join him and his little group is starting to grow. But the call is calling him out again. And at some point, and maybe it was at the point that he called Levi was a trigger point because from there we see him moving into a regional ministry, not just a home-based ministry, but moving throughout the Galilee and from there nationwide throughout Judea and Galilee, Samaria, Tyre and Sidon. We see him moving out through all those areas. And so we see this call moving as his understanding of his father's business continues to grow in him and then it ultimately leads to his execution. Speculation, I know, based on clues that are here, based on just a reading of what would a real person's life look like going through this way, following this journey, trying to show us what it looks like. And the shape of Jesus' life is a hero's journey. We've talked about hero's journey in here before. We just watched the movie Hidalgo. Hidalgo is a quintessential hero's journey like the Wizard of Oz is. So whether it's Dorothy Gale or whether it's Frank Hopkins, it's the same story that we tell ourselves over and over again because it is the shape of every person's journey through life. Frank is amazing 
and we'll talk about him in a second, Dorothy has that divine dissatisfaction. Somewhere over the rainbow is a life I want, not here in Kansas in the pigsty. I don't want this. And eventually, because of a series of, of events, she moves out, runs away from home, but then gets scared, runs back. The twister takes her anyway. You know, that She has tasks that she is given to bring back the broomstick of the wicked witch. And when she completes all the tasks and she comes back home again, she knows something about herself and about the place for the first time that she didn't know before. And instead of always looking out there for what she thinks she needs and wants and desires in life, what does she say at the end of the movie? Next time I go looking for my heart's desire, I won't go looking any further than my own backyard. Because if it's not there, I never really lost it to begin with. Take a look at what's happening with Jesus here. At age 12, he's moving out. He steps out into the, into the temple and is moving out into the world. But then he moves back again in submission. Did he change his mind? Did he know what he's doing? Was he that cognizant? Did he, just knew, did he just know that he had to serve his parents better, had to take care of his family? But all the while, the call is still there, and it's calling him, and it's moving him. And then he answers the call to go to John, and then to go into the wilderness, and then come home again and start teaching, and the call keeps calling him out ultimately to everything and to give everything that he had to give as a statement of love for everyone around him. This is the shape of the hero's journey, to go out the task that we have to perform. The first round that we see with Jesus, he had to answer those three temptations from the adversary in the wilderness. And he comes back home and brings something with him that they'd never seen before in him had never seen before really in the prophets. They're seeing something different. He taught with authority. He's called out again and takes another circuit, actually to his execution and death. But he even transcends that and comes back home with something new, something deeper, this fire of the Spirit to give to his followers and those who trust in him and believe in him and are willing to follow him. This is the shape of the journey. To let go of the familiar, to let go of the safe, to let go of the secure, in order to break into the next level of freedom, into pure connection. This is that unending process that Jesus is modeling for us and trying to tell us along the way. It explains so many of his difficult sayings, doesn't it? Father, or, or Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me bury my... My parents first. Let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. What the heck? You know? But if you hear and you see the shape of Jesus' life, you understand what he's talking about. It doesn't mean that you shirk your responsibilities with your family, but you don't use them as an excuse to move into the deepest places of connection and freedom, to move beyond just blood relationship, to see that there's something more than that. Another one says, uh, yeah, yeah, I want to follow you, but I got this. And he says, hey, wait a minute. You know, no one who starts plowing and looks back is fit. You can't be looking back wistfully for this over here if you're really going to throw yourself in full extension over here. Because if you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. You're going to have to let go of what is familiar, what is safe, what has brought you this far. If you really want to go somewhere you've never been before, this is what it looks like, and this is what it feels like. You've got to be willing to purge. Marion and I just moved six, seven months ago. We downsized. 
there was so much stuff we have to get rid of. Steve and Tina are moving right now, and she's laughing over there because she knows what I'm talking about. And Steve's out there laughing. I see him in the courtyard. They're moving right now. They're going through it. Their house is going on the market in a week or so, and they're purging and trying to get rid of some of this stuff, downsizing. This is what the way is kind of like. It's kind of like a downsizing move. You've got to purge all this stuff. And you know how hard that is? You're going through those boxes in the garage that you haven't touched in years, so you know you don't need them because you haven't touched them in years, right? But, oh, I need that. Oh, I can't get rid of that. You know, and, oh, this was the kids when they were, oh, no. I might need that sometime, this pot, you know. I might need this. It's so hard to let go of that stuff. If it's hard to let go of that stuff, how hard is it to let go of the stuff inside? The stuff that we've built our whole ego and personality around. The stuff that we've built into our emotional programs for happiness and survival. How is it going to be easy to let go of that stuff? It's not. It is so difficult. But we have to be willing to let go of those things. Now I want you to relax a little bit. When we talk about this purging and moving, it doesn't mean you have to leave your house, leave your family, leave your zip code. All right? This is an internal process that Jesus is talking about. Even though he chose to go back home and be in submission to his family and responsible to his family, apparently, this process was still motoring along internally. And then it broke out at a time where he could do it appropriately, responsibly, without hurting people in the process, to follow what he needed to follow. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to let this internal thing percolate? Continue to question the things that need to be questioned, to let go of the things that need to be let go of. If your life is not marked by this kind of downsizing, by this kind of having to let things go through your clenched fingers, then there's a lot of clutter in there that's going to keep you from being able to see what Jesus is trying to get us to see. Ultimately, it's all about identity, finding out who you actually are. I wanted to close with a little reading from James Finley, who was a student of Thomas Merton back in the 60s. He entered Gethsemane Monastery, and uh, Thomas Merton was the novice master at the time, and so he studied under him for several years. So he has a particularly clear insight to Thomas Merton's spirituality. And he writes, Merton's whole spirituality, in one way or another, pivots on the question of ultimate human identity who we are, understanding ultimately who we are. Merton's message is that we are one with God. Jesus' own words, I and the Father are one. Our own deepest self is one with the risen and deathless Christ in whom all are fulfilled in one. Along the journey to God, the self that begins is not the self that arrives. At the outset, our self who is who we thought ourselves to be. This self dies along the way until in the end, no one is left. No one is left. This no one is our true self. It is the self that stands prior to all that is this or that. It is the self in God, the self bigger than death, yet born of death. It is the self God forever loves. The small self, the contrived self, the self that we built is the one that needs to be crucified, the old man who needs to die. Think of all of that imagery in the New Testament. 
so that we can identify with what is really there. In the movie Hidalgo, Frank Hopkins is a half-breed. He's half Sioux Indian and half white. And since he can pass for a white man, he hides behind his white face for his entire life and tries to hide his Indian blood because it's not conducive to life in America at the time. The Indians are being systematically decimated, so he pretends to be a white man. He's losing his soul the whole time. And then when he witnesses the massacre at Wounded Knee, it breaks him in his spirit, and he descends into alcoholism and all these problems, and he doesn't know who he is anymore. And it's because he has a chance to run this 3,000-mile race across the Arabian desert where he takes and answers the call to the hero's journey, completes the task to which he was assigned. And at the very end, when the race is won and over and he's ready to come back home again, he's talking to the one character who has been the, the lead the whole time. And she says, is it true then, as in the Western stories, that the cowboy always rides into the setting of the sun? And then she says, but not the same cowboy. He's not the same man anymore. He knows who he is. He accepts his Sioux symbol of identity. And he becomes whole again. This is what happens when we take the hero's journey. This is what happens when we are ready to let go of the things that we are holding on to, the mask that we wear, to find out who we really are. To let that happen. And of course, it's a balance between the personality and the ego mind that we need in order to just live and and trade and do the things that we do in relationship. But a moving between those two, dual citizenship, if you will, of flowing back and forth. We use the personality, we use the egoic mind as a tool to do the things that we need to do for as long as we're here on earth. But we know it's not who we are. Finley continues, Merton doesn't question the reality and importance of the empirical self, this small self we're talking about, that we call our personality. We must deeply respect our whole person, including the day-by-day realities of life and the self that is formed by them. What Merton does say, however, is that when the relative identity of the ego is taken to be my deepest and only identity, when I am thought to be nothing but the sum total of all my relationships, when I cling to this self and make it the center around which and for which I live, I then make my empirical identity into the false self. My own self then becomes the obstacle to realizing my true self. Do you see how that works? To let go of the obstacle is what Jesus' way is all about. It's the shape of the journey. It's the way that we do this. He can't tell us that directly. You can't transfer this from one person to another. All he can do is show us with his life and use these word pictures, these stories, these metaphors to try to get it across. It's the closest any of us can come to understanding what's really at issue here. I remember when I was trying to learn how to sing and a vocal teacher said, I can't tell you what to do with muscles that are inside your throat. You know, how how do I tell you to put your vocal folds this way and do that and the other thing. He says, do this. You just sing, and when I hear the tone produced correctly, I'm going to stop and I'm going to tell you. Now, what did that feel like? When you were making that tone right there, what did that feel like? Now, just reproduce the sensation that will reproduce the correct tone. 
It's an indirect way, but it's perfect. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this is what it feels like along the way. It feels like death. It feels like you're losing your life. It feels like everything familiar is going out the window. It feels like you're just disoriented and you don't know which end is up anymore. It's okay. Lean into that place. That's the feeling. Reproduce the feeling and you are on the way. If you just do that, show up and do that, that's what it is. Reproduce the feeling. Jesus is showing us what it feels like to move along this way. And we can see it in his life. Reproduce the feeling. Reproduce the willingness to leave home internally, but without having to change your mailing address, right? That's what it feels like. Now ask yourself the question, are you feeling it? Are you allowing yourself to go there? And if you're not, why not? What is it you're afraid of that's keeping you from moving into that place that feels like that? Jesus is asking the same thing. Come on. It's great in the pool. Just jump in. You'll like it. Trust me. So hard to do that. But that's where it is. That's the issue. That's the point of it. Move in. Let the feeling happen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you once again. These scriptures are amazing. The more I dive into them, the more I just move through them, the more I see things that I don't know how I missed before. Help us to be that way. Help us to move through the scriptures, but also through our lives to see things that we missed before, to to make connections that weren't connected before so that we can see more clearly the shape of the journey, the nature of the path, and reduce that fear so that we'll take those steps and move forward. Thank you for being with us every step of the way. Thank you for being our cheerleader and, and just moving us along. We want more of you, Father. We don't want anything standing between us and the full experience of your love and your identity. Thank you, Lord. And remind us we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.